Turn with me now, if you would, to the book of Judges, the um, 21st chapter. That's page 280 if you're using the Blue Church Bibles. People are pointing out that this is a very important day, Super Bowl Sunday. It's Groundhog Day. It's the day after Hayden's birthday. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very rare calendar palindrome today. 02-02-2020. Hey, how about that? Reverse that. It's the same thing. huh? This, this uh, truth, this hasn't happened in nearly a thousand years. Since 11-11-11-11. And it won't happen for another century when it's 12-12-21-21. But far bigger than that, it's the end of Judges. All right. Some of you have been waiting for this day. Let's read God's Word together. <clears throat> Judges 21. little levity because it's, it doesn't end well. Okay? <clears throat> it doesn't end well. Hear now the reading of God's Word. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people arose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and pedos offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mitzvah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mitzvah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there, and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with them, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them women, the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, 
that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, and on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them else you would now be guilty. And in the pe- and the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at the time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we're here at the end of this book. Um, Just March of last year, Lord, we began the study, and yet some of us have been waiting for this moment, that that moment maybe when we could move on, because there's no happy ending here, Lord. But, But we know that we need your inerrant, inspired, and authoritative word. We know that we need all 66 books. And we need know that we need all their verses to become mature and to ensure that we don't make the same errors of our brothers and sisters of old. Lord, so use these words, use these verses, use this chapter, use this book to sanctify our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us these last number of weeks, chapter 19, 20, now 21, it's just one tragedy after another, and today is no abatement in that. Um, we, we finally slide now to the bottom of the hill. And uh, today we're going to look at some very old kinds of sin that are very familiar to us. Some of this goes back to the garden. This morning we're going to look at blaming God and blame shifting. We're going to look at how we tend to make our own rules. And finally, what happens when we do do what's right in our own eyes? What happens when you do what you want? all the time. So that's what we're doing. We're going to look at how the, how the people of God blame shift and blame God, how we tend to make our own rules, and then what happens when we just do what we want to do. So let's look at uh, blaming God and blame shifting. Um, that uh, great philosopher, uh, George Carlin, um, once observed a universal rule of the road. He said that every driver slower than you is an idiot, Every driver faster than you is a maniac. You, on the other hand, are in the golden mean, the magical middle. You are because you say you are, and who would dare contradict you? What Carlin was pointing out there is that each and every one of us has an authority problem. I, your pastor, have an authority problem. And I bet yours isn't much better than mine. Uh, I get angry at stop signs when I don't think they should be there. My opinion. 
I especially hate four-way stop signs. Right? I don't like speed bumps. The best way to get me not to do something is to tell me that I have to do it. Now, I'm not proud of those things, but at the same time, I have to confront the fact that I'm not very special in this area. The Bible tells me that you have the same problem that I have, that we all have an authority problem. The Bible says the central problem, you could say, of all humanity is an authority problem. There are certain moments that make this clear. You know, most people don't get mad when people believe in things that they don't. Most people don't get mad when other people believe in things they don't. If you believe, for instance, that Dunkin' Donuts coffee is better than Small World, and I believe the opposite, it doesn't make me mad that you believe something that I happen to think is false. However... Tell certain people, tell atheists, that you believe in God and they can get loud and they can get sarcastic and sometimes even abusive. Why? Why on that subject? It can make them mad that you believe something that they don't. Why is that? And the Bible's answer is authority. If you're right and they're wrong and God exists, and God, therefore, is in charge, they don't like that. Now, you think it would be hard to hate what you don't believe in, but there it is. They do. And the Bible gives you a reason for this. The Bible says that every single person in this world actually does believe in God. The unbeliever is simply working very hard at not looking at the fact that they do believe in God. As we say over and over again here at Hope, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But they do know God. <clears throat> and so we suppress that truth such that our anger and sin expose the belief that we say that we don't have. Now, why am I so convinced that atheists and unbelievers live under their own smokescreen? Because I'm just like them. I'm just like them, right? I have an authority problem. There are times, as a Christian, as a Christian, when I don't like to be under God's authority either. I will confess that I have certain categories in my life when I think I know better than God and that I want to push back at God and say, well, if I were Lord, I would do it this way. Don't you agree, Lord? And very subtly, I've nudged him off his throne and I put myself on it and I've asked him to agree with me because I have an authority problem. And remember, um, this goes back again to the garden when Adam and Eve decided to disobey God. And it goes back to the beginning of the book of Judges. The book of Judges in some, way, in some ways constructed the same way. Remember all the way back to last March, that's when we began the series, and we pointed out that Israel, remember, had one job. One singular job, just one. It was to drive out and if necessary, only if necessary, to drive out, and if necessary, kill the Canaanites. The people of God knew this. They had long been told this. It wasn't, they weren't just told by Joshua like weeks and months before as Joshua leads into Judges. <clears throat> Their ancestors had been told that this was going to happen. It's way back in Exodus 23. It's back in Deuteronomy 20. 
that God had told their ancestors that when they arrived in the land, they would have to drive out the idolaters. Judges, then, is that book that commences just after God's people arrive in the land. But what immediately happens after they arrive is nothing. Nothing. No driving anyone out. Actually, it's not nothing. What immediately happens is the very thing that God said would happen if the people of God did not drive out the Canaanites, which was they would assimilate. Assimilation happens. They become consumed with Canaanite worship. They become consumed with the Canaanite gods. They become consumed with Canaanite morality. They become consumed with Canaanite women. In fact, stick your finger here in chapter 21. Flip back to Judges 2. <clears throat> Swipe back. That's page 255 if you're using the Blue Church Bibles. You'll remember this. Judges 2. Jesus, remember, comes to the nation of Israel in Judges 2 as a theophany. An appearance of the living God before the people, and he warns them. Verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, but of course it's the voice of God, right? I brought you out up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. <clears throat> as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. come to Bethel and sat there till evening before God and again they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. The writer of Judges has included these if you will these narrative bookends of weeping because this whole period of the Judges is surrounded by the historical bookends of actual weeping. But there's a difference a big difference, and it has to do with authority. Authority. Look, in the beginning of Judges, this command to drive out the Canaanites wasn't done arbitrarily, and the command of God was not done on the basis of race, as if something uh, uniquely uh, different about Canaanites. After all, Rahab uh, was an ethnic Canaanite, and in the book of fo the Follows, we have Ruth, who's a Moabitess, also from Canaan. Both ultimately were women of God, no, the mission was right there in verse 2 of chapter 2. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. You shall break down their altars. That was the point. To remove false worship, to destroy lies, to break down all the false hopes as people were putting their hopes in, 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 in the same thing that their fellow Canaanites were, and, and, and to prevent assimilation. Now, why was that? Not just because the idols weren't true or real, not just because God is jealous of his lordship over all, but because the practices of the Canaanites 
their worldview was evil. If the Canaanites had fully assimilated Israel, and that's what was going on, then the covenants, you see, go away. They go away. The tent of meeting goes away because they're assimilating to the Canaanites. The sacrifices to atone for sin at Shiloh, that goes away. The law is forgotten, as we've been saying the last couple of weeks. God, Yahweh, is forgotten. And then all then are evil, just like the Canaanites, and then no one is saved. And yet God is covenanted to save his people. The Canaanites were evil. They did things like child sacrifice. There were evil deeds practiced by unrepentant evil people. And assimilation and, un, to, to, and, and intermarriage would cause God's people to be dragged into those same practices. So that God loves Israel enough to warn them and to tell them to drive this evil out from among them and show no mercy when it comes to cutting off those things that cause you to sin. As Jesus says in the New Testament, it's no different. It's not like we've got one nasty God in the Old Testament and nicey-nicey and, and Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus says if your arm or your eye causes you to sin, you know, get rid of it. Now, he doesn't mean to actually gouge your eyes out or you cut your arm off, but you know what he's saying. The image is profound. Stop that. Drive those behaviors out from among you. But generation after generation, judge after judge, and the capitulation and the intermarriage and the assimilation continues. Our last judge, Samson, couldn't stop himself, remember, from going down to the Philistines. He couldn't stop himself from marrying a Philistine. He couldn't stop himself from behaving like the Philistines. He was, as we said, Israel in one man. All of Israel was doing what Samson was doing. And this failure to do job one, both by Israel and by its judges, leads first to the Canaanites outnumbering Israel. That wasn't supposed to happen. They were supposed to be driven out. And then it leads to moral confusion. And now they have become like the Canaanites. Remember last week, they're just like the Sodomites. But it's worse because they're doing what they do. The Sodomites did what they did to another. Israel does it to, its, to themselves. That's why the weeping is so important. Israel should be weeping at the end of the civil war over their own sin, but instead they're weeping over the sentimental loss of one of their tribes. In, 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 in chapter 1, they wept because of what they, Israel, had done. Here, they are so assimilated, they're so much like Sodom, that they weep bitterly over what they think God has done. God, why did you do this? Look at verse 3. They wept bitterly and said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened to Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Why, Lord, in other words, did you let this happen? They did it. They're the ones that made the oath to, to, to take out Benjamin, to destroy Benjamin. They did it. God didn't do that. And yet they blame God. And by now you should know why. Because they did what was right in their own eyes. Here the issue is that they made promises. They made oaths. They, 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 their own covenants. 
Jephthah's vow, no matter how rash it might have been, has nothing on this particular vow. This is the rash vow of the book of Judges. God has asked Israel to vow that they would get rid of the Canaanites, but Israel manages to get rid of one of their own tribes. How did that happen? They rightfully remembered that when a similar parallel sin had happened back in Sodom, God had destroyed a whole town. But Sodom and Gomorrah were Gentile, pagan, evil towns. Now the same wicked practices are being carried out within the tribe of Benjamin. Sin has become so pervasive within Israel that Israel has turned on itself. And 65,000 men lose their lives in the Civil War. Now the end result is that the 11 remaining tribes make a national vow to not let their children, think about this, intermarry with their fellow Israelites. Think about this for a second. All along, these same people, these 11 tribes, Benjamin 12, all along, these people have been allowing their children to intermarry with Canaanites. And then, look how confused they are in verses 2 and 3, 6 and 7, verses 15 to 18. Israel laments that Benjamin doesn't have a future. Well, of course, they have no future if, there's, if there is a national covenant to prevent their daughters from marrying them. You can intermarry with Canaanites, but you can't even marry your own fellow. It, 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 everything's backwards. They've essentially killed the people that they're sorry for killing. And they don't know why. They don't know why. And then it gets even more crazy. They don't just make that one foolish vow. They make another one that says that anyone who missed the National Assembly would be killed because they found that the men from Jabesh-Gilead, they're from the tribe, by the way, of Manasseh, they didn't show up. So to deal with the trouble of one tribe, Benjamin, they get another tribe into trouble, not because God told them to do it, but they needed a fix. They needed two wrongs, they thought, to make a right. Now, again, notice the irony. Here is a group of people who have shown no stomach for killing pagan baby killers like the Ammonites, but now have made vows to wipe out whole tribes of Israelites, men, women, and children too. How did that happen? So sick has Israel become that they are killing themselves and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. Now, I have to move on, but I'm hoping the point makes itself. We have hearts that know what they're supposed to do, but the very thing we're nowhere to do, we do not do. And then we blame God for why we don't do it. Now, if you've ever read Romans 7, this should sound very familiar to you. It's as old as Adam in the garden. Remember, the woman... God, whom you gave to me, who just moments ago I was singing a wonderful poem song about her. She was bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She gave me the fruit of the tree to eat, and I did it. You did it, and she's responsible. Blame God, blame somebody else. Friends, when we blame shift, we only hurt ourselves. When you blame someone else, 
for what is wrong in your life, large pieces of your life become built on a lie. You are the king of your own reality, and yet the emperor has no clothes. When will you lay all of that down? By the way, I'm not talking about when you blame somebody else who's, who's oppressed you, who's abused you. I mean, when we do what the Israelites do, which we do pretty frequently, that somebody, somebody else is, is responsible for all my problems. Lying is so complex. It's so hard to keep your story straight. Why can we not just say, I struggle with doing all the time what's right in my own eyes? Why can't we just say that? Why can't we say, I struggle with putting God's commands before my, my desires? It's a pretty simple thing to pray and, and say. Why don't we do that? Uh, I, I, you know, I need a king to rule my life. Why can't we just say that? Why can't we say I need a savior to atone for my sin? The book of Judges shines a mirror on your blame shifting and the blaming of God and shines it on your heart so that you can repent and find Jesus. Second point, and these second and third are much shorter. Um, making your own rules. We're, 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 here we are, we're about to end the book. You've, in the last year, you've read through a whole book of the Bible if you've been here on these Sundays. And as we end up at the end of the book, two entire tribes are about to be dead. God's people have ignored both God's written commands and his commands to give them through the special revelation of the theophany to drive out sinful Canaanites and not intermarry with them. But they are taking oaths of their own making to kill Israelites and not intermarry with them. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? So let me ask you, what are your own self-devised moral standards? I think you know what I'm talking about. Where maybe to fit in, maybe to be accepted, maybe to be liked in certain settings, you've kind of shifted the biblical goalposts to better match up with how you'd like to fit in with those other people. What are those, what are those precepts? Today, of course, the pressure is always on things sexual because the culture measures autonomy in light of sexual freedom. It's just the way the culture is today. And so the pressure is always there on the Christian in those particular areas. What are those things where you know what God's word says about an, about an ethic or a behavior, but you have quietly, without really telling anyone, or maybe just a few people, that your views are going to be just a little bit different than God's word. What are those places? Where you've decided that you will live and you will behave and you will believe about those things the same as the culture. And by the way, it's never some third thing, right? It's never like everybody, somebody comes up with a new ethic that's just like from outer space that no one's ever heard of. It's either, it's either the scriptures or exactly like the culture. Where are those places where you've decided to, to match up with the culture? You start to fly their flags. You start to accept their latest behaviors and decide not to tell anyone what you used to think was right and true even just six months ago. What are those things? It's not that you even try to look at the Bible's take a little bit differently or get some you know, newfangled spin on it because you know when you read the text, 
that the Bible is just crystal clear about it. But you've decided that in just one or two of these areas, you will make and accept your own rules. Where are those places? I've got, I've got a couple of places that are tempting to me. What are yours? In fact, you both ignore God's written commands in these couple of areas. Again, today it's the sexual stuff, views on gender fluidity, gender as a social construct, sex outside of marriage, polyamory, transgenderism. And you make a vow to never allow the Bible standards to ever get in the way of your relationship to anyone else because of those things. What might happen if you did do this? Now, we don't have to go all the way back to the book of Judges again for another example. As Christopher read, this sort of thing was going on in Jesus' day as well. A thousand years later, a thousand years after the book of Judges, and Jesus was dealing with the same sort of thing. Now, he had different pressures on him, different areas, different categories. The Pharisees and the scribes were following Jesus to catch him doing something wrong, something that didn't fit in with the dominant culture that he was in. And they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were, according to them, defiled. They weren't ritually washed. And Mark has even, uh, in his gospel, has a little parenthetical that you heard read that explained that the Pharisees and the scribes held to this tradition. A tradition of the elders that this ritual washing made you spiritually clean. So in their eyes, what Jesus and his disciples do, they're, they're spiritually unclean. Why should we listen to you, Jesus? You're spiritually unclean. unclean. And, and <clears throat> the idea was that this that, that, that ritual cleaning made you acceptable, made you righteous to the people around you. And Jesus breaks into this critique and says, Isaiah prophesied about hypocrites like you. People who honor me with their lips, I'm a Christian. But their heart is far from me. I got some other views than you, God, and you just have to come toward me on those things. Teaching, Jesus said, as doctrines, the commandments of men. The culture out there, brothers and sisters, is religious. It's not secular out there. It's as religious out there as it is in here. Everyone's worshiping. Everyone knows God. Everyone's an idolater. Our hearts were made to worship. They're worshiping. You're worshiping. They may be worshiping something different, but they're worshiping. And they want you to assimilate to them. Of course, we would love, to, in fairness, for them to know Jesus Christ. But Jesus is a, it, 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 it's a gospel. It's a God of grace. What you assimilate when you go out there is you assimilate to law, and they have laws, and they, they want you to assimilate to their law, or you are out. You're canceled. You're nothing to them. We want to be something to other people. We all have fear of man, and there are going to be some areas where you give in. What are those areas? Now, some of you say to yourself, I would never do that. I would never ignore the written commands of God and start to obey the latest traditions, the current rules of the culture around me. I would never do that. I would never pick and choose and enshrine just those commands of God that I, I, I will make, uh, I will follow only to make me look good to the religious and accept and enshrine those things of the culture to make me look good to my friends. 
I wouldn't do that. The point is, once you start going into, in two directions, and you have functionally two laws and two gods, it's suicide. It's what's happening here in Judges 21. You are killing yourself without even knowing it. Once you start suppressing God's truth and start exalting your own formulation, you cannot stop, you cannot hold it together. It feels right for a while because you feel like you've got more love of God or still got the love of God and you've got more love of people that you want their love from. But then it begins to fall apart. And this is especially important, by the way, to think about as you're heading off to college because it's all about authority, right? It's all about authority. You think you're finally going to be your own authority. And yes, you do know what is right and you do know what is wrong. But the opportunity for a character and personality reset is a powerful temptation when you go off to college or you go to some transition like that. So you start to think about how you're going to reinvent yourself. And for everyone, there should be some self-evaluation. But in terms of ethics and morals and authority, who gets to say what's wrong or right? When you find that every time there is a tension between what you know God says and what the surrounding world says, and every time you say, on this, the world is right, that's when you know. That's when you know. You want to be king? You want to do what's right in your own eyes? And you're on the path to doing what's right in your own eyes. And all I can say is, look at your brother and sister Israelites. That's why they're in there. Do you think the people that are memorialized here in, in Judges 21, at, now that they're in glory, do you think they want to be in here? No, I don't think so. But I also think, <clears throat> because they glorify God, they know they're in here so that you don't do what they did. That's why they're there. That's why we're preaching through this book. So that we know, we learn from them. In a sense, they're in a Bible study with us. Let's learn from them. Finally, do what you want. Well, if this is all, uh, you know, if, if this isn't all weird enough, two tribes of Israel essentially wiping out each other by Israel, there's still guilt for how messed up they all are. And, um, <coughs> excuse me. While they destroyed Jabesh Gilead, they found and they gathered up, you notice there, 400 young virgins to provide as wives to the few remaining men of Benjamin that they knew were hiding out at the rock of, of Ryman. If you remember last week, the end of chapter 20, verse 47, we learned that there was actually 600 men left, a little remnant of Benjamin, hiding out. So we've got a tribe that's hanging by a thread. <clears throat> and now, I mean, the, Israel, while they're not following God, and God is largely forgotten, they do seem to know culturally that there's supposed to be 12 tribes. And they're kind of feeling bad about how there aren't really 12 tribes anymore. So look at how crazy this gets. They send a message to these 600 men to come out of hiding and declare peace to them, their fellow Israelites. Yes, we know. 
We killed your wives and your children. Sorry about that. But you know, there was the concubine and there was the lying Levite. So we had to destroy you. But tell you what we're going to do. We happen to have 400 virgins over there from Jabesh Gilead. And now we've actually come up with a plan to rustle up 200 more. And you're going to be a part of the plan. We can't give you our own daughters to you disgusting sinners because we made a solemn vow to God that we wouldn't do that. But we have no problem killing the men of Jabesh Gilead. So now we've got their daughters. And you know what? There's an annual festival up at Shiloh. That's supposed to ring a bell. That's where the ark, that's where, that's where all the sin should be atoned for. But hey, today we're not talking about that. There's a festival up at Shiloh. And every year they have this blowout party. And for whatever reason, all of the unattached women come out to dance. And here we are. We're at Cana. And so when we're in Cana, we do what the Canaanites do. So here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> um, you are going to come out of the bushes at just the right time and jump out and kidnap 200 of these virgins. And then you'll have the 600 wives that they need. How does that sound? Amen. You're supposed to give me the end. No, I'm kidding. It's all about authority. Now, I know what you're thinking. If there had just been, right, if there had just been one person to say that vow number one was dumb and we should repent, none of this would have happened. If there had been just one person that said vow two was dumb and we should repent, this wouldn't have happened. And if here there was just one person who could recall the cockamamie idea that they had just come up with was, was, excuse me, was against the Eighth Commandment, against stealing, none of this would have happened. But God has forgotten. You see, the focus is now not on God's commands, but how they don't break their own man-made vows. They're concerned with their own rules, their own laws. They rule, they have their own laws, and they don't want their own laws broken. You see what they want to be? Got to sort of recast this. What are they up to here? They made some vows. And other people know they've made vows. And they can't go back on their vows. They want to be authentic. See? They want to be true to themselves. We can't do a little man-stealing to break God's law. But we kept our vows. So that's the calculus we make. Now, I know that this is hideous, but the morality behind what the Israelites do, always let your conscience be your guide. Always be true to yourself. This is the ethnic, we have it today, of the Disney Channel, of the Hallmark Channel, right? They're just doing the best they can with what they have. Um, this is nothing if it's not authentic, because, friends, sin is authentic to who you are. You're a sinner who sins. The culture loves authenticity. So it comes back to authority. It comes back to what is going to rule your life. What's it going to be? Will you decide what is ethical 
or will you rely on the written and scripturated word of God? Will you depend on your rules or his rules? Will you determine how you parent and discipline your children based on what you think parenting should be or on what the written word of God says? What are you going to do? Will you rely on what's right in your own eyes? Will you rely on the word of God? What will rule you when it comes to things that you do with your finances? What will you do? Will you do what's right in your own eyes or will it be determined by the written word of God? What controls what language you use? What websites you look at when no one is looking? What's going to determine that? Is it going to be whatever is right in your own eyes at that moment? Or will it be the written word of God? What will control how you relate to your friends, your roommate, your spouse? Will it be what's right in your own eyes or will it be the word of God? It grinds you down after a while, doesn't it? But, but we need it. Don't miss the point of this last chapter because it's this. If you continue to do what's right in your own eyes, there is no limit to how far you can fall. That's the point of, of what we're reading here. Look at Israel. They are so morally confused that they're killing themselves and they have no eye for it. They can't see it. We're about to come to the table. <clears throat> and there is a small glimmer of hope in these last verses. It is well hidden in verses 23 and 24. But it's there. And I want you to have hope as we come to the table. Verse 23, and the people of Benjamin did so, and they took their wives. That is, they stole these women from the dancers whom they carried off evil. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Did you catch that? In the midst of all this hideous depravity, for not just Benjamin, it says Benjamin once, but the second time it says Israel. Everyone ultimately went home and returned to their inheritance. Think about that. An inheritance is something future. Hmm? In a sense, it's a gift. An inheritance, you could say, is a future gift, a gift that depends on the giver. Now, the people of God, right now, they have no hope. They should be smote by God the way he smote Sodom, because the people of God here are worse than the people of Sodom. But like Abraham, they still have an inheritance. It's a sure hope. They have a future the tribes are Abraham's inheritance. This morally bankrupt, entirely confused nation has the inheritance of a promised Messiah who will come, who will judge, who will save, who will deliver Israel. He will do it. They may be faithless and they may be fools, but he is faithful and he is all wise. Remember Ephesians 1, three times in Ephesians 1, Paul will use the word there, in him, we have obtained 
an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Two more times Paul repeats, we have an inheritance. You have an inheritance. Thank God for that. Thank God it depends on God, on a God of grace, who in his Son has given us a gift that while we keep stumbling, while we keep failing, while we keep sinning, while we keep nudging God off the throne, and we want to rule our lives, and when things don't go bad, we shift blame, we blame God himself. Thank God we have an inheritance that's promised by the Father, purchased by the Son, and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we're amazed by the power of your word and how much we need it because, Lord, um, the, the, the weight on our hearts to assimilate, the pressures to give in are constant. <clears throat> and we want to fit in. We don't want things that shouldn't divide us to divide us from our neighbor. You've called us to love them. We don't want needless things to separate us from family members or even people that are enemies because you've told us to love them. But at the same time, Lord, we are a holy people. Yes, entirely because of Jesus Christ and his imputed righteousness. But you set us apart to be different, to think different, to love different, to care different, to serve differently, to behave differently to honor Help us not to assimilate to this culture that's after us every day to change, but to have one king, to have eyes for that one king, that we would not do what's right in our own eyes, but to honor the one who's given us his life, to honor first what's right in his eyes. Our King Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen.